Perform this on demand. The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. If you hear yourself saying, feels pretty good to see somebody rub their nose in it, you may be addicted to outrage. We've expressed our outrage at everyone and everything that is different. Every thumbs up is like a dopamine surge and every retweet is a serotonin hit. In my new book, Addicted to Outrage, we bring clarity to this addiction. If enough of us can just drop our anger and outrage, we might just stand a chance to heal ourselves. Addicted to Outrage by Glenn Beck. Pre-order now at glennbeck.com slash addicted to outrage. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This. Always an honor to be with you. And if this is your first episode, I hope you're looking for a genuine, honest American patriot, a Muslim who believes that it is our role as Muslims to lead reform, to lead the cure of the cancer that is spreading across Muslim communities, which is radical Islamism, which is the violent offshoot of political Islam. And so far, sadly, very few have done much. And thanks to the heroic efforts of our Homeland Security, our Department of Justice, and others, we have stayed safe for the most part with the attacks decreasing. But the problem hasn't gone away. Jihadists will reform themselves. And here on this program week to week, you and I find those battlefronts, those areas where we should be paying attention, where we should be addressing the disease. And here on Reform This, I talk to you about the areas that need reform, the areas that the obsessed media, obsessed on Trump, obsessed on partisan politics, ignore. And... Thanks to The Blaze, I'm able to do this for you every Saturday. And you can listen to it at your convenience, and thanks for joining me. This week, I want to follow up on an issue that became front and center. Last week, I guess I I didn't really know that Jack was going to testify from Twitter. But we talked about a need for a declaration on free speech. We talked about a need for a Bill of Rights for Internet users as Facebook, Twitter, social media platforms are starting to get more and more criticism about fixing the problem of hate speech. Does it need to be fixed? Should it be fixed? I think the conversation was advanced significantly, but I'm getting a little nervous, and I have to tell you why. Because you look at my work, and people say, we're the voices of moderate Islam. I would tell you that, while I think the number one problem is the, the somnolence, the anesthesia of most of most Muslims who have deferred any need to do anything because they happen to be blessed here to live in a country that's 99% non-Muslim and the Islamists uh, would never control society or governance. But that doesn't mean they don't have a responsibility to do something because living in this laboratory, we can do things you just can't do anywhere else. And they're passing up a responsibility to do things that can weaponized that can marshal our resources to be used across the planet. But having said that, the term Islamophobia, the term has been used as a bludgeon across the head of anyone who tries to speak critical of Islamists, of anyone who tries to talk about reform and the need for us to address 
those areas that need change. And I bring I, I remind you of this subject because when you look at limiting the internet, when you look at private corporations deciding what speech they're going to allow or not allow, that conversation ultimately will set the groundwork will set the groundwork for the Islamists to later walk in and say that this is hate speech against Islam, this is bigotry, this is racism, and all of a sudden reformers will even get less of a voice on some of the main highways for thought exchange in America. So first, as a liberty-minded conservative uh, who has many tendencies for libertarian thought, I don't want government involved in regulating free markets. I, as a business, if somebody's yelling things in my waiting room at my medical office, I will ask them to leave or take care of them. <laughs> if they're sick, obviously, then I should see them. But if they're having a, a need to express themselves in hateful, inappropriate ways in a, in a place that's not meant to do that, I, as a business owner, have a right to control that, and I think Twitter also similarly is a business that can set standards and it has a policy. The problem that's happening, though, is that Twitter, as in Facebook, has hundreds of millions of users, and it's become one of the primary venues for communication. So the standards change to our societal public standards, almost as if a private company, let's say they own the freeways, and I needed to get from point A to point B to get to work. Does the government set the road rules, or does the private company set them? I think once a company starts to own a majority interest of the, of the available communication pathways, transportation pathways, energy pathways, we then start to realize that government regulation may be necessary. Again, that is not a conservative viewpoint, I will admit that. I think what's conservative about it, what's small government about it, is the protection of small businesses. And that's what I wanted to tell you today is, is I believe that the voice of the consumer, consumer protection, the voice of small businesses, little upstarts that start their hashtag, that start their... Uh, you know, at Dr. Zudi Jasser, at AIF Democracy, at Reform This Radio, all these small companies that we start, we use Twitter to practice, to get followers, to enlarge our business. It's a highway. And we have to be treated with some of the aspects that become necessary regarding American law. And if you look at healthcare, if you look at communication, if you look at um, energy industry, whatever it might be, some regulations are made to provide protections from predatory businesses that might have bait and switch, that might have other aspects that prevent fair market practices. So as a result, I think that one of the key elements that's been missing in the conversation is let's look at financing, for example. If I have a credit card, I go, balance is paid, I yet go use it at a gas station, and gas station attendant tells me, oh, it's not working, you can't use it here. And I'm like, well, my bill's paid, you can't use it here. I turn over the back of the card, I call the 1-800 number, I get a human being, and I can fix the problem typically within 10 minutes. 
And if that human being treats me inappropriately, I can file a complaint. Now, that's going to take a lot longer. And yes, it is a big, oppressive company. But still, there's a way to get a human being for consumer protection. And do you think those credit card companies do that because they want to just be kind and available? Maybe. They might. Maybe they lose business. Maybe there are some free market pressures there. But I also think there are some regulatory protections for consumers, for small businesses that use credit cards. And I think similarly, when it comes to the use of Twitter, we need to have consumer protections so that there is some regulatory protections for small businesses to prevent Twitter from, I mean, look at the attention now it's giving Alex Jones, and I'm going to talk about that in the next segment, but, you know, should Alex Jones be removed? And he was suspended. And they put a reason why, et cetera. So when somebody becomes a certain level of, of, of power, then he gets a full explanation from Twitter as to why he gets removed. While every day there are hundreds and thousands of, especially conservatives, I think it's been demonstrated repeatedly that there's bias against conservatives that is removing their messaging from Twitter. And some of them get their accounts suspended with no public display of why they're just suspended. Who do you call? You go to the help button on your Twitter app and you do a hashtag support and you might get a response and you search, you don't know where to get it. It is the most blinded, non-consumer friendly business I have ever been a part of. I should be able to call somebody immediately that can look and tell me in a chart with documentation that I can have, just like when credit ratings get documented, when financial files get documented, there is redress in understanding how decisions are made. And the social media companies need to be held accountable. Now, let's talk about their free market principles. When we come back, I want to talk to you about what speech should they prevent or not? Should the government get involved in that? This is very important for the issue of Islamic reformation because the Islamic governments every day are putting people in jail for the things that Twitter now wants to start, Facebook now wants to start regulating. This is Zudi Jastron, Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. They're not hysterical. No, they're not. They're just passionate. Yes. They're owning their power. <laughs> so that's how you own your power? Yeah, apparently you could tell if someone's owning their power because it sounds like... You remember the woman who owned her power during the inauguration. Oh, the famous... Yes. No! no! Trigglypuff. The Morning Blaze. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. We are talking about the primary weapon I have as a Muslim against Islamism, free speech. We're talking about the primary weapon I have to protect my family, to protect myself from the ideological permeation of Islamism, of Wahhabism, of the theocratic ideas that permeate Islamic indoctrination. 
If we're going to reform against them, we need to have conversations. We need to have critical thinking. And that happens through social media. It happens through academic writings. It happens through venues that allow us to think against the establishment. And if Twitter cannot, if Twitter starts getting into the business of deciding which speech is palatable and which isn't, it is no longer a platform for free speech, but it is a platform for Twitter's ideology. It is no longer an avenue for for critical thinking. It becomes a Twitter platform shaped in its own identity, whatever blasé form that might be. So recently, the approach to Alex Jones, he was banned from Facebook, and now after Twitter initially said no, they then proceeded to ban him. And... There was uh, some discussion as to why that was done, and basically it said uh, that it was revealed through the Daily Beast and others that he had posted a video that verbally attacked a CNN reporter, Oliver Oliver Darcy, saying that, among other things, those are the eyes of a rat. A month ago, Twitter had given him a small punishment for his inflammatory behavior on the platform, a suspension for a week, that prevented him from tweeting, retweeting on his personal account after many videos had been flagged that Jones posted to Twitter in which he encouraged his supporters to ready their weapons against the media and other groups. Now that may be a call to violence. I can sort of see that one. And that may be a justified mechanism for restricting free speech or certain speech, I don't even think calls to violence should be characterized as free speech. So, yet, it was small compared to his deplatforming from YouTube, Facebook, Apple, Spotify, and others that have removed Alex Jones and Infowars from their platforms. Facebook followed up by suspending Jones for 30 days, YouTube terminated his account, and on and on. Dorsey, Jack Dorsey testified to Congress this week and did a dance that was filled with some actually pretty good testimony and admissions about possibly some bias that might exist and other deflections and nauseating denials. For this program's purpose, I I think it is essential to note that the tests of a democracy are not the speech that is obviously simply ideological and academic and highbrow but it is what is we do what is it that we do as a society with that speech which is the most offensive the most offensive now the supreme court and american culture rule that pornography it's known when you see it you know it when you see it it's hard to describe but it can be outlawed because of the certain modicums of propriety that need to exist. You could similarly say that you don't need profanity on Twitter in order to be cogent and express your ideas. I actually would not mind that. The F word uh, and a few other words are not necessary forms of communication in order for me to be critical of leadership or the establishment. But Alex Jones, when he criticizes media, makes fun of their faces and all these kind of things, it might be unpalatable. But so is when the left sticks 
a cross, a crucifix in urine, and they call it art, and our taxpayers paid for that decades ago. And it was considered free expression. And yet, that is part of a culture that denigration of religion, as long as it's Christianity or Judaism, is okay. If it's Islam, nobody's talking about shutting down Hamas, Harikat Islamiyah, Hamas movement, Hamas Info EN, their main Twitter account that has 74,000 followers, joined in March 2015, or Minister Farrakhan that has... hundreds of thousands of followers that regularly post anti-Semitic garbage that is part of a movement that is hateful. No, that's a protected class. So you begin to see that what are the standards? There's a slippery slope there. And I think ultimately the most offensive speech needs to be protected. And America has ruled on this before. The Brandenburg versus Ohio case that talks about the limits of speech being as long as you're not calling for the imminent attack, violence, death upon an individual, you're not directly inciting to violence. Now, you could say that calling for governmental change, etc. You, as you look at Saudi Arabia, for example, or Iran, they will invoke incitement to violence for any type of speech. And anything that's said, they call incitement. So I would be careful on the incitement thing, other than to say that the sentence itself has to be obvious call for violence. Attack this person, hit this person, kill this person. That is not free speech because it can immediately drive people to commit acts that would be uncontrollable by a society with a cascade that would happen too quickly. But criticizing somebody's looks, uh, racism, hate speech, if you start limiting that, the Alex Joneses of the world will give way then to the reformers the Muslim reformers who are told that we are anti-Muslim, that we are Islamophobic, that we are bigots, that folks who are free to criticize Islam that might be atheists, that reject all religion, that, uh, you know, as we say in our Muslim reform movement, human beings have rights, but ideas do not. Ideas don't deserve protection, but human beings do. When you tweet something, that's a human being that's saying that you have to protect that individual's rights. But what he writes doesn't have a right to a protection. So Islam, if you write about it, doesn't have a right to be protected from criticism or even denigration. Now, I hope and pray we live in a society where we continue to respect major faiths, we continue to to live peacefully and, and, and look critically at things that need reform and, and love each other with a tough love and stop the enabling, which is something you and I have talked about frequently. But I'm very much, now I'm offended by the fact that Alex Jones is called a conservative. The only thing he conserves is his BMI, his body mass index. Uh, but other than that, he's not a conservative. He's a lunatic hyperbolic, raging, crazy man. 
if you just look at his his statements, there's no ideological coherence. He sometimes is a collectivist, a hypernationalist, and other times he's a conspiracy theorist who has has the academic uh, coherence of a teenager on reefer. Just makes no sense. But at the end of the day, we, if we restrict his freedom, if we restrict the freedom. They will go underground. He will find alternative pathways to communicate with his followers. And at the end of the day, that will be more difficult to suppress. And why I supported Brandenburg versus Ohio is not just because it's the highest court of the land, but it makes sense. Europe has a much bigger problem with hate speech and hate groups because they push it underground. They don't protect all speech. And when you push it underground, you can't monitor it. Alex Jones can be mocked. I've sent around his videos, as many have, uh, as, as, as displays of human caricature in life. You can't do that if you make it illegal. So I would say antiseptic is sunlight. Sunlight is the antiseptic of bad ideas. And if you start restricting that speech, I would beg Facebook and Twitter and others... Talk to your members of Congress. Use this opportunity to protect consumer rights, to protect the antitrust methods of, of protecting a small businesses from being, being shouted out, drowned out, and sent off to where Prager University was sent off on YouTube, where, where uh, certain uh, groups have been sent off on PayPal and others. It's not only about speech on Twitter, it's about financial freedom. They're starting to cut off people from being able to buy guns with MasterCard, with Visa. These are things that are a slippery slope that once they become a mechanism for restricting your freedoms, there is no end to it and it becomes everything becomes a political battle. Everything. Your ability to buy a house, your ability to save money, your ability to purchase items, your ability to express your own ideology becomes a political challenge even when you want to buy furniture at a store with your credit card. That's not an exaggeration. That's where things are going, ladies and gentlemen, if we don't be careful. I get it. The security-minded conservatives even want to see certain things removed. You want to see Farrakhan removed from the internet. You want to see Hamas removed. But, yeah, remove their calls to violence. But I'd rather be able to see these organized parties, these organized movements in our country or elsewhere. I'd rather be able to see them operate and critique their ideas than not. We had this conversation about Olaki. Olaki was one of the primary enemies of this country after bin Laden. They removed all of his videos from YouTube. I said they should remove his calls to violence, but his other videos could serve as educational literature to understand the primary cancers of radicalization of Muslims. Removing it doesn't make those ideas go away. And the radicals will have it, but we won't when you remove it. Think about it. It's great talking to you about this stuff. I'll be back in a sec. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. 
Pat Gray. Those who are pro-life are trying to save the lives of human beings. And do you realize how many of those lives are the lives you claim to adore? Minorities, women, there will be homosexuals. There will be people who grow up to be transgendered. We're trying to save the people you claim you love so much. Pat Gray. Unleashed. Unleashed. Join me Monday at noon Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. A lot to talk about this week. I want to pepper through a few uh, things on the front page this week. One is the media was all over the fact that this CNN commentator by the name of Wait, wait for it, by the name of Scotty Hughes. Yep, never heard of her. Scotty Hughes, apparently, now she's all over the media that she was a conservative commentator, pro-Trump, who is joining RT. Yep, joining RT. Like, who cares? Well, first of all, it's sort of interesting that they're, they're exaggerating her conservative credentials. She used to be at Fox, I guess. I had to look this up because I don't remember ever seeing her on Fox. But anyway, she used to be at Fox, and then she went to CNN and became the the Trump talking head uh, for CNN. Now, after the passing of Ed Schultz, yep, that far lefty Ed Schultz who uh, uh, had his Mr. Ed show on MSNBC that had the ratings that were in the tank, he went over to RT to become one of their talking heads. And now this Scotty Hughes goes over. And, you know, I think her first guest should be Gary Johnson. Why? Because she can ask him, hey, hey, what is Idlib? Remember the old, what is Aleppo quip that uh, Gary Johnson said where he truly did not know what the, what the heck Aleppo was. And there was a massacre happening with tens of thousands dead in the city. And I'm sure she'll ask him, because I'm sure her bosses at RT told her, if you don't do anything on your first day, don't talk about Idlib. We can't talk about Idlib. Yep, nobody's talking about Idlib. There's a crisis happening there. The shelling has begun. Uh, They're beginning to cordon off the city. If it happens, supposedly the massacre is supposed to be worse than it was in Aleppo because they want to squeeze out the jihadists there. We'll see what happens. Our prayers are for the people in that city. To Trump's credit, this week he tweeted, I think a couple times, about Idlib, uh, putting the Russians on notice about it. I was a little disappointed. I think the the tweets, uh, especially from Nikki Haley, could have been worded differently. They were warning them not to use chemical weapons, which made it seem like as if they were telling them, well, we don't care what you do there as long as you don't use chemical weapons. And remember in Idlib, there's some jihadists hold up, but the vast, vast majority of the city has nothing to do with radical Islamist groups. And if you look at what the regime did in Aleppo and Hama and Homs and other major towns in Dara, they will wipe out the entire town in order to say it was legitimized because the last Jabhat al-Nusra and al-Jihadists were, were there. Well, 
our prayers are with them. I want to talk briefly. Yes, this might sound off topic, but I want to talk briefly about this Nike ad that Kaepernick is a part of. And the reason I think it applies to this program is, you know, part of my raison d'etre is free speech, is the ability to speak out. And you'll remember that this Nike ad, here's a guy that made $42 million in football and now cannot get a job because he truly is a horrible quarterback. Now, you had Ahmadinejad all of a sudden weighing in this week. Yes, believe it. I thought it was from a, I, I thought it was from a parody account, but it was actually from Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's account, who told the world that there's a real racial injustice happening in America because one of the best quarterbacks ever was not being able to play because he was outspoken about race. Can you believe the previous head of of a militant, brutal theocracy, theocratic tyranny, has the gumption to not only weigh in about free speech, but tell us about quality of football quarterbacks when he he probably knows nothing about it? It's absurd. Absurd, but it sort of tells you the way these, what, what happens to nonsense that comes through our media and how it's thrown back at us. And by the way, the Nike ad said, believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. So what we're telling our kids now, corporate America, the board of directors at Nike said, believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. Believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. What is that? They don't even say Everybody's supposed to know that it applies to Kaepernick, but it could mean fascism. It could mean uh, socialism. It could mean anything. Kaepernick, as you know, if you look at his political history, there was some fealty towards Cuban socialism and 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 Chavera uh, and uh, Guevara and others that are. are, are I, I didn't look it up recently, but the bottom line is he's likely a socialist. Now. Is he courageous for his stance for against police brutality, etc.? He would be if he did it in the right venues. And who is it, who, is it our place to tell him which venue is right or not? There are some things we unify around. Our military is one of them. No matter what the mission was, you might disagree with it. When they come back, we celebrate them. Regardless of what, we don't know what their politics are, and it doesn't matter what our politics are. When our military comes back, we celebrate them. When we go to sports games, we're enjoying the sport. It's something we do as a culture that we enjoy the sport. We're not going to divide the stadium into two and and have a political debate. And when I go buy my tennis shoes or my athletic garments, which I will no longer do from Nike, I'm done. I, I do not want to get political lectures from a sports paraphernalia corporation and if they're trying to sell me a philosophy fine i want to know about it but you don't establish yourselves as a nonpartisan, pro-american business and then take on a preaching 
ideology that basically says believe in something even if it means sacrifice everything. Oh, by the what by the way, at the same time that political movement on the left that the Nike board has bought into, believe in something even if it means sacrifice everything, just posted an op-ed in the New York Times by someone who doesn't even have the guts to put his or her name to it. So I guess believe in something if it means sacrifice everything as long as you stay anonymous and you don't put your name to it according to the New York Times. Is this the message to send our kids that that if you want to serve your country, you stay and subvert the president and violate security clearances and other than I may not have released information, but he obviously violated he or she obviously violated a loyalty. So either you resign and then you can say whatever you want. Whatever you feel is good for the country, you have free speech. But you don't do it from within and say you're part of the resistance. That doesn't make any sense. Your testimony is useless, and all it does is 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 cause anarchy and disruption in our societies. And you can see what's happening on CNN and MSNBC to understand that. And at the same time, you have this lecturing from Kaepernick that believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. And I'm particularly offended because my work— against radical Islam is about often sacrificing quite a bit to be ostracized from the tribal Arabic community that will support Islamists even if they disagree with them because they have tribal authority, political influence in Washington and media and elsewhere so the community wants to bond to them. Believe in something. I believe in American freedom. I believe in American identity, our constitution. I am against Sharia law and government. I am against Islamist ideology. So I believe in something. So, yeah, the tagline, if it's applied to the right place, might mean something. There is a way to debate and advance some of the crimes done by police against minority communities. That needs to be looked at, and there should be task forces for it. And I think there's been a lot of progress done, but I don't think it's been done because of taking a knee. I think it's been done because of the good, courageous work of many foundations, of many activists that are all over society for the same cause. So I won't be buying Nike for a while, but keep the politics out of football, keep the politics out of my concerts. If I go to a concert, I don't want to hear Bono give me a lecture about hate speech, or whatever it is he's going to talk about. The analogies go on and on. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. I have to give you another update on Iran. The things continue to be fluid in Iran. The sanctions that were reimposed in uh, just a little over a month ago seems like a year ago because things are deteriorating exponentially. The Rial is tanking. It has lost another... 
something like 40 to 60 percent. It's had a 140 percent drop in the currency's value since America pulled out of the nuclear deal only four months ago. And 40 to 60 percent of that drop was in the last week. They're saying that signs of the currency's chaos can be seen with as fears rise. Goods like diapers are having a hard time being found. And diapers were, were talked about by the Grand Puba, the Islamic Supreme Council leader, Mr. Khamenei, complaining about diapers. He's like, they really don't even want us to have our diapers. And the reason he's talking about diapers is 70 to 80% of the material used to make diapers come from the United States or come from the West or outside the country. And he used it to say that they want to kill their babies, that that's why. The sanctions are put in is because they don't want them to be able to put diapers on their babies. Okay. Right. Meanwhile, Ahmadinejad's tweeting about Kaepernick's quarterback skills. Yeah, the, the clerics are circling the wagons. They are actually sounding humiliated. The people are, and you can see their tone changing. Normally they're belligerent, they're pompous talking about regional domination that's not happening because they know that language was rat was was bringing the people to the streets and rallying them around the concept that it is possible to see the end the light of the end of the tunnel for this regime so sanction pressure is fuel for the people it's fuel being taken away from the regime as they no longer have the money flowing in. Company after company, we're hearing day after day, pulling out from plans to go into Tehran. And now, apparently, they were living on a shoestring when it comes to their, their huge deployments of military into Syria, financing of terror into Yemen, Syria, and elsewhere with Hezbollah. And they overextended themselves, likely. They've still dumped more money into conventional weapons, local missiles, and other things in addition to whatever's going on with their nuclear program that we do not know the details of. Those who went to work this week on Saturday, a week ago, saw their money shed a quarter of its value by the time they left the office four days later. Signs of the currency chaos can be seen everywhere in Tehran. Travel agents that are offering vacation prices only in hard currency and as I said before, the diapers are missing from the shelves. Khamenei called the U.S. move sabotage, sabotage this past weekend, and specifically mentioned the diaper shortage. So they were also beginning to use fake media accounts. So they have the resources, though, to use fake media accounts to push anti-Trump propaganda to push whatever is being published in the New York Times which is interesting you know I'm trying to square the circle of Iran and Russia working so close together and Russia actually pushing pro-Trump propaganda I think when it comes to the nuclear deal though obviously it's a huge schism between the United States and Russia Russia is trying to lobby the UN to get that back in and now we've heard coming in the UN General Assembly meeting later this month. President Trump is due to chair a conversation about 
Iran's bad actions in the neighborhood and what they are doing to subvert stability in the region. That's going to make for some interesting conversation, won't it? So, it's not only Russia that's driving instability in social media, but it is Iran. Iran's economy is tanking, the revolution is gaining steam, and they are continuing to drive instability in the region and throughout the Middle East. They will have, and this is going to be on the agenda for President Trump, Ambassador Haley, to discuss their ambitions regard to missile deployments, weapons sales to Yemen, support of terror groups like Hezbollah, and support of the regime of Assad and its war crimes. All of that's going to be on the table. Fascinating. And I want to leave you with a thought. We have talked about different words. The word of the day this week is backlash. Backlash. After every terror attack, the media has you believe that there's going to be some type of backlash against Muslims. That's the story. And it basically never pans out. It's a fake story. It's a non-story because Americans, yeah, there's some bigotry that might exist here or there, but we are a tempered population that lives by the rule of law and is a melting pot, a salad bowl, if you will, of various cultures. And I think for the most part, Americans do not exaggerate certain threats into an entire community. Now, does that mean that it may not happen in the future. Nobody can guarantee that. This is why I do the work that I do, because human nature is at the end of the day to become fearful of growing threats. But the backlash issue, the reason I raise it to you is one of the, one of the, 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 the central parts of my work is to try to convince people the truth, the reality of the fact that nonviolent Islamism is the precursor to violent Islamism. It seems irrational, obvious thought, but the, the Islamists who, who drink from the trough of political Islam refuse to acknowledge that because that is their party, that is their movement. So they're not going to acknowledge that militant Islamists who seek the same ends of a caliphate or Islamic state, anti-Western uh, weakening um, limitation of our influence of freedom across the world through their anti-Semitism and anti-Westernism, the Islamists will not recognize that the Al-Qaeda and the ISISs of the world, even though they know they're related, even though they know the, the Zandanis of the world who went from the Brotherhood in Yemen to Al-Qaeda in Yemen, the, there are many of those that exist. It's a natural conveyor belt, a natural radicalization process for Islamists that are totalitarian theocratic autocrats. So, why did I mention that in the context of backlash? Because after every attack, the left and the Islamists work together to minimize any concrete conversation about root cause analysis because they want you all to be afraid that somehow Americans are all eight-years-old bullies and they're going to react viscerally rather than have a rational conversation about it. So we can't even talk about the connection of Muslim theology, Islam, to radical Islam and the pathway especially of nonviolent Islamism to violent Islamism because there'll be a backlash. So 
we need to find a concept on the other side of the equation that begins to harp on the fact that even if the attacks have decreased in nature, the fear of an attack and the growth of Islamist groups creates a bigger fear that there's going to be more attacks. The pool is growing in, in its size, even though the attacks from floating in the pool we continue to get in our whack-a-mole program, but the water level of Islamism inside the pool is growing. So the left uses backlash fear to prevent the analysis we need. On the right, we need to educate America about the fear of what can actually happen in a world in which Islamism continues to grow. How many of you know about the success that the secular Democrats have had in Tunisia against the Islamists? Probably none. Probably very few of you because you're not paying attention to Tunisia domestic politics. And yet, in a normal world in the 90s, there have probably been a lot of news stories about what's happening in Tunisia. But now with the the news cycle that shifts with every tweet from President Trump, we're not really paying attention to major shifts in political dynamics across the world where actual gains that are being made in spite of American policy, not because of, but in spite of American policy where we're ignoring Tunisia, the Islamist law. So imagine if we actually had an offense, an offense that America understood there was a direct connection between nonviolent Islamism and violent Islamism, so therefore we declared the Brotherhood a terrorist organization, and we started to work with other parties that were not Islamists but also advocated for our values in the West. Because we were able to awaken Americans to the reality that there was going to be a bigger terror threat, a, a front lash from terror if we didn't do something about it. So backlash story is nonsense. Maybe there will be a front lash if there is such a word, but you know what I mean about the threat that we're not dealing with the Islamists that are more of a threat in a nonviolent level in which they become a conveyor belt to radicalization. And we need to address this on a daily basis. As always, thanks for being with me. I hope you learned something. I hope you got a little flavor of what uh, I think should be on the agenda of America as we address the threat, the need for reform, the various uh, methods in which the issues of free speech and other things uh, apply to what I'm trying to do in the Muslim community. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Talk to you next week. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network.